Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. Fifty miles or so north of New York City sits West Point, the United States' premier military academy. When we say premier, we mean it. Aside from a battery of entry exams, both physical and mental, one must be nominated to even apply for admission. And if a candidate finally manages to make it in, they are, for the next four years, a cadet, an officer in training bound to a strict honor code, a rigid schedule, and the highest expectations in, well, just about everything. West Point's notable list of graduates is less like a list and more like a history book. Generals Patton and Sherman, Presidents Grant and Eisenhower, and the chief financial officer of Twitter. Even famed romantic writer Edgar Allan Poe attended the point, although that didn't actually go very well. Anyone familiar with his writing is probably not surprised to hear that. In any case, West Point is an academy for serious students who were on track for serious military careers. And its leaders take their responsibility of shepherding those cadets along their paths seriously. In fact, in West Point's entire 200-plus year history, they've only lost track of a single cadet. And that cadet, strangers, is the subject of today's episode. In the first half of the 20th century, there were a handful of famous missing persons cases that everyone knew. And the disappearance of Richard Colvin Cox, West Point cadet, was one of them. Though his name is not well known among modern true crime fans, his disappearance inspired one of the most thorough searches, or you could say manhunts, in American history. Because Richard Cox, second year cadet, was not just a missing person. He was, at least technically, wanted by the army for desertion. But 
Let's back up just a bit. 1950 is a good year to start. It's a time when West Point had a rather unusual student population. As in other post-war years, many of its young cadets had already been to war and were now training to be officers, rather than deploying once they'd finished school. Richard Cox was one of those seasoned students. According to the news journal, Richard was the youngest of six brothers and sisters and a high achiever. Born in 1928, he just barely missed service in World War II. Still, when he enlisted in 1946, there was still significant overseas activity in Europe and beyond. Per the Sandusky Register, Richard was stationed in Germany. And what did Richard do there? For now, let's go with the official army line per the Mansfield News Journal. Richard was, quote, a clerk in the intelligence office, but had no security clearance. When Richard came home from Germany, he and his high school sweetheart, Betty, entered into an informal engagement, which sounds like the 1950s version of changing your relationship status to it's complicated. Then, per the Mansfield News Journal, he applied and was accepted to West Point. Things were going well until January of 1950. Richard Cox had returned to West Point after winter break and was back to studying. According to the Miami Herald, he was studying Russian. Several sources described his difficulty grasping full mastery of the language. Yet, he's also described by a number of outlets as, quote, in the top third of his class, with no apparent issues. But his own mother, Minnie, viewed his return to West Point with more concern. She told the Lima News that he had not seemed enthusiastic about going back up to New York to resume his studies, and the letters she'd received since his return, many told reporters that his letters have sounded as though he was dissatisfied. But as far as anyone knew, Richard Cox was still getting along with his friends, his roommates, his informal fiancé, and he was doing well in school. In fact, an old friend showed up to visit him that very January, and that should brighten anyone's mood, right? Well, not quite. So would begin a series of events that, two weeks later, would end with Richard vanishing. What we know about this period is mostly because of the news journal, which would eventually publish an exhaustive 12-part expose on Richard's case. And more specifically, we have reporter Jerry Underwood to thank. As patron saint of annoyingly persistent journalists everywhere, he squeezed one Freedom of Information Act request after another out of the government until he had piles of information. Richard Cox's personal letters, the FBI reports, and even possible suspects and theories. According to Underwood, it was the first week back at school, and Richard Cox and his two roommates, Dean Welch and Joseph Urschel, had settled back into their routine. Reportedly, they didn't notice anything unusual about Richard, not until he began to mention an old friend who'd come to town. As was usual at that time, the hallmates shared a common phone, and on January 7th, a call came in for Richard Cox. Richard wasn't home, so another cadet took a message. Per the news journal, 
The message left was this. Just tell him George called. He'll know who I am. We knew each other in Germany. I'm just up here for a little while and tell him I'd like to get a bite to eat. But Richard Cox told the cadet who'd taken the message, Haynes, that he didn't know this George. That he was some guy who claims he knew me in Germany. I don't know who he is. And yet... Richard's roommates can verify that he left to meet with the mysterious George that very same evening. According to Underwood, Richard's roommates never actually saw the man. But others did. People who worked at nearby businesses reported seeing two men, one of whom matched Richard Cox's description. And you might be thinking, that's a solid set of leads right out the gate. But you'd be thinking wrong. As it would turn out, these descriptions are as vague as they were inconsistent. Per Underwood's expose, one witness described Richard's companion as fair-haired with a fine complexion, and the other witness described him as dark-haired with a rough complexion. For the record, strangers, this underlines the fact that eyewitness testimony can be very unhelpful. According to the Bucyrus Telegraph Forum, Richard spent significant time with the mysterious George throughout that week, both on campus and off. And this time wasn't spent cordially catching up. As a matter of fact, Richard didn't seem to like this George guy all that much. According to the Mansfield News Journal, Richard complained about George more than once. He had other things to do, after all. But he still went out with George, for whatever reason. In fact, he came home from one of their earlier outings, that first Saturday, absolutely stinking drunk. He was so intoxicated that his roommates had to help him stumble through the dorms. But not before he'd screamed a woman's name down the stairwell, they thought it was probably Alice, though they weren't 100% certain. Listeners, you'll note that Alice was not the name of Richard's almost fiancée, Betty, nor was it particularly close. We can't imagine that Betty would have been thrilled. An author who later published a book on Richard's case, titled Oblivion, even managed to dig up a photo of him from that night. The cadet was passed out at his dorm-issue writing desk. He had never been in such a state, not at school. And what's more, he was coming home from these outings with George, full of strange and disturbing stories. They're too gory for us to relate here, because, apparently, some of you are letting your children listen to this podcast, very educational of you, but suffice it to say, this George claimed to have committed a number of war crimes. If George had hoped to impress Richard with these stories, he had failed spectacularly. The young cadet related them to his roommates with distaste. But he continued to see this mysterious and apparently awful friend. And why? What hold or attraction could George possibly offer? What kind of history did they have back in Germany? Richard's roommates never found out. On January 14th, 1950, 
Richard told them that he was leaving for dinner with George. Per the Miami Herald, he planned to meet his guest at the Hotel Fair, an off-campus establishment popular with cadets. According to his roommate, Dean, Richard was wearing his dress uniform and an overcoat, and he wasn't carrying anything. When investigators later searched his room, they found that it held most of his personal belongings. Numerous outlets reported the same items found in his room, $87 in cash, which would have been almost all of his money, according to those who knew him, and a watch. That watch was important. His family insisted it was special to him and that he'd never leave, not permanently, without it. He also left behind his civvies, or civilian clothes. We know that Richard Cox signed himself out of West Point. That signature has become something of a historical artifact. But what we don't know is, well, everything else. There's no proof that he ever made it to the hotel fare. Where did he meet this mysterious George? Or did he even meet up with him at all? Richard Cox's absence was noted quickly, and West Point officials sprung into action. Per the morning call, they, quote, daily combed the 1,500-acre campus, searched the nearby town, and even deployed a helicopter. The news journal reported that they checked every hotel and rooming house and with each bank to see if Richard had a bank account and if he'd made a withdrawal. Train tickets were cross-checked. Cabbies were questioned. And according to the Sandusky Register, officials were worried even from the beginning. They described his disappearance as, quote, more than alarming. Perhaps it was because his personal effects were left behind. Perhaps it was because he was doing well in school. Perhaps it was because they suspected foul play that this mysterious George had killed Richard Cox. But perhaps they were so intent on finding him because some very interesting correspondence had come to light. According to the Miami Herald, Richard wrote letters to his mother, his girlfriend Betty, and his best friend, all expressing dissatisfaction with school. He wrote to Betty, I asked mother what she'd think or do if I give this place the boot it deserves. Go into a business or insurance school for two years and then sponge off her until I caught on to the cruel ways of the world. Per the Herald, he doodled a cartoon of a, quote, cadet spitting on the logo of the West Point stationery. Doesn't sound like a man thrilled with his choice of career. And Bud Groner, his best friend and a man he'd definitely actually been stationed with in Germany, saw him just a few weeks before his disappearance. They'd had dinner, and Bud told the Herald that Richard was behaving oddly. I don't think he was meant to be a career West Point person. So, Richard Cox was in poor spirits, and a mysterious friend had turned up in town. Many drinks and frightening stories later, on their second weekend of rendezvous outings, Richard Cox was simply gone. Per Underwood, it was calculated how we have no idea that Richard had about $5 on him at the time. Certainly worth more in 1950, but not worth George killing him over, surely. So if George had attacked Richard, why? And where were they now? West Point officials, the U.S. Army, and the FBI spent 
three years trying to figure it out. They started with the identity of George, who said he'd served with Richard overseas, but they couldn't turn up any evidence that that name or resume were real. According to the news journal, officials eventually focused on a man who'd served with Richard Cox, not named George, but at this point, we might as well drop that lead entirely. This man, whose name was not George, had married a Russian woman, one named Alice, the same name Richard had drunkenly yelled down the stairwell at West Point. Bud Groner felt that this was the best candidate for the George who'd come to visit Richard. At the time, though, there wasn't enough evidence to connect the person of interest to the disappearance, though he was living near West Point. And if this man had killed Richard Cox, why? But a second Mansfield News Journal reporter would dig up more information on another possible George. And with this other suspect came a possible theory as to George's disappearance. According to the Miami Herald, a citizen sleuth received a tip from a policeman who'd in turn received an anonymous news clipping about a man named Robert Dion Frisbee, who'd been accused of murdering a rich old woman on a cruise ship. Stick with us here. The letter implied that this man, who went by Dion, had something to do with Richard Cox's disappearance. And there were indeed connections. Per the Miami Herald, they'd been stationed together briefly in Kentucky. Other pertinent facts included Dion was gay and had a business making fake IDs. And why would these matter? Well, when the FBI eventually released their files, there were reports that Richard Cox had relationships with at least two other men. His family and friends and roommates denied this, but the 1950s weren't exactly the best time to openly express the scope of one's sexuality, so who's to say how much they knew about Richard's love life? The citizen sleuth theory was this. Per the Miami Herald, he believed that Richard was feeling pressure to marry and didn't want to and he didn't want to continue in the military either. So this George, aka Dion, who knew why he faced these problems, who understood them, could help. The theory was that Dion had gotten Richard a fake ID and delivered it on January 14, 1950, allowing Richard to disappear. Of course, there are problems with this theory. Why would Richard leave his money? What about his watch? Would he really abandon his family? And what would Dion get out of it? If he's really killing old ladies on cruise ships, he doesn't seem to be the most magnanimous, favor-granting kind of person. According to the news journal, there were a number of other rabbit holes that officials followed. Of course, that's our very favorite kind of hole. They looked to Richard Cox's intelligence work overseas, such as it was, serving as a clerk for the unit in Germany, and that suddenly became a focus. Had he been involved in the black market while stationed in Germany? Spying? Intelligence work? It didn't help that shortly before his disappearance, he'd written a very odd letter to a German acquaintance to ask what she knew of the Russian situation, implying the rise of communism. 
Could Richard Cox have angered the wrong people? Or was he in deeper with the intelligence community than anyone knew? There were people willing to say so, including a soldier who'd served with him in Germany, who claimed that Richard had even killed a Russian. But according to the news journal, other men who'd also served with Richard disputed this. He had been a clerk, pure and simple. Still, there were rumors that, perhaps, Richard hadn't died. Maybe the mysterious George hadn't been someone come to kill him. Maybe, instead, Richard had been recruited for the CIA. He would have been forced to leave his friends and family behind in order to serve his country as sneakily as possible. Sure, maybe... He did speak some Russian, and he certainly had a suitable background, even a little bit of intelligence experience. But then, why would the FBI have so doggedly tried to find him? They didn't officially close his file until 1957, the same year that Richard was declared legally dead. According to the Mansfield News Journal, the Cox family never believed any of these rumors. They felt that George whoever he was, had simply murdered their son and brother, and that authorities had never been successful in finding Richard's body. They found the theories alternately painful or irritating, depending on whom in the Cox family you spoke to. Several of his sisters lived into their 80s and 90s, and they granted interviews every time an anniversary rolled around. And that would be that for Richard Cox, a mystery that, while enduring, seems to have no threads left to pull, except for one strange thing. Since 1950, there have been at least two credible sightings of Richard Cox. And when we say credible, we mean military credible. As in, not spotted by people who also saw Elvis at the Waffle House. Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode. Kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to be attacked by an alligator? Or what goes through one's mind as they're stranded in a snowstorm? What Was That Like is the podcast for you. Real people come on every episode to explain the unbelievable situations they've been through. Guests share how they really felt during their most surreal experiences. They tell us what they did the morning before an earthquake, how it feels to win The Price is Right, and all sorts of details that you'd never learn anywhere else. 
If you're interested in hearing disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, What Was That Like is the podcast you've been looking for. Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know that even the most unrealistic are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like wherever you get your podcasts. According to the Mansfield News Journal, the first sighting came in 1952, only two years after Richard's disappearance. But the FBI didn't find out about that until 1954 because the witness didn't know that Richard was missing. An old military friend, Ernest Shotwell, saw a man he recognized as Richard at a bus station in D.C. Per the journal, Shotwell said, Cox, are you Dick Cox? And the reply? Yeah, how are you? Reporter Larry Phillips writes that the two spoke for a few moments, but that Ernest felt his old friend was uncomfortable, jumpy even. Richard excused himself, and Ernest didn't think much of it. Not until he read an article two years later and realized that Richard was a missing person. Per Phillips, authorities deemed this a genuine sighting. So, strangers, make a bet what you will. And the second instance. Per the Mansfield News Journal, in 1960, in Melbourne, Florida, an undercover FBI source was on location at a bar. He was introduced to a new man who called himself R.C. Mansfield, like Mansfield, Ohio, Richard Cox's hometown. Well, you can imagine what happened next. The undercover operative wasn't expecting to run into Richard Cox, so he was surprised when the man eventually revealed that, yes, he was that missing cadet, and that, quote, the U.S. Army and my mother think I'm dead. Of course, the information was reported, and further meetings were arranged, but this mysterious man was a no-show. R.C. Mansfield, or Richard Cox of Mansfield, he was in the wind. And though the theories abound from there, that Richard ended up in Europe, that he did take on a stint in the CIA, that he died in Maryland of thoracic cancer at age 90, no one can actually prove what happened to Cadet Richard Cox. Some even claim that he went to all the trouble of disappearing to avoid a cheating scandal that broke at West Point after he left, although opinions are divided as to whether he was a cheater or a whistleblower. Lacking, as always, is proof. To this day, he's the only cadet to ever go missing at West Point, a story that is told to new classes, a name written in the books and preserved for the ages. It's funny, for a man so clearly talented at disappearing, Cadet Cox certainly seems to have left a clear mark. It might just be that, even for our nation's finest, it's harder than it looks to vanish into thin air. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. 
One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There, you'll get ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, and plenty of other fun content, all for five bucks a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in the show notes. And now, please stay tuned for a moment to hear a promo from our friend Leroy Luna and his show, Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where he takes a look at the lighter side of crime. A note for the parents who listen to One Strange Thing with their kids, this promo might be a little much for our smallest strangers. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know, who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as The Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.